Reading from James, chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. So you can follow along in your Bibles. The words will be up on the screen, or you can do what I'm going to do and read from my phone. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Jeff. Those who don't know, Jeff and I are good friends. We are life group buddies. They've gone back a long time, some like 10 years we've been in a life group together, but more importantly than that, we are the uh, Family Camp 2023 Can Jam Champions, okay? <laughs> so that's what, now that we're talking about things that really matter, uh, yeah, got to take that, take home that uh, uh, Dude's Donut t-shirt. I was about to say bring home the trophy. No, we got a t-shirt from Dude's Donuts for our championship, but uh, it was a great time last week, and uh, if you weren't able to come, I hope Hope you'll look into the possibility of joining us next year. Family camp is always just a lot of fun and had a really good time there. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew Moss, and I work with the college ministry here at Sunnybrook. We call it The Table. Uh, there's a team of a handful of us uh, who get to, to do that and work with students as they come and join our church here, something we love getting to do. And another thing I love getting to do is opening up God's Word on Sunday morning so we can do that with you today. When I was about uh, 10 years old, I was jumping on the trampoline with my brother Tyler. Actually, I wasn't jumping, we were wrestling. That was one of our favorite things to do. We grew up in a home of all boys. And so one of our favorite things to do was to go out on the, in the backyard and have wrestling matches on the trampoline. And at some point in the middle of this match, Tyler did something, and I don't remember what it was, but did something that made me mad. Uh, again, I don't remember if he kicked me while I was on the ground, if a, a stray elbow caught me across the face, but whatever it was, I got mad and I lost it. And so on the very next moment, the very next bounce that he took, I waited for just the right time, and as soon as he popped himself up in the air, I lunged at him and shoved him as hard as I could. Now, this is the day before the uh, safety nets that were around all the trampolines, right? This is back in the day when childhood was just a big game of chance, and we'll see who survives. <laughs> and so there's no net there, right, when I shove him, and he just goes flying off the trampoline. All the way, and he, you know, he got a good bounce. So he's, he's like four feet off the trampoline, which is three or four feet off the ground. So he's way up there in the air when he comes down and hits the ground like a sack of potatoes. And I remember in that moment being so angry, uh, but then in the next moment being so scared because unbeknownst to me, my dad had seen the whole thing from the kitchen window and had burst out the back door. I'm pretty sure he was out the door before Tyler hit the ground. Uh, and one of the reasons I remember this so much is because my dad was a very patient, even keel person. And I, I can only think of a handful of times in my life when I even heard him raise his voice. Uh, this was one of them. Uh, 
Uh, and he came out uh, yelling and, and sending me to my room and letting me know in no uncertain terms that there would be consequences for my actions. And I got off the trampoline and I'm half angry and I'm half scared as I grumble walking past my, my collapsed brother on the ground and up to my room and I sit up there and I stew feeling just so frustrated and angry and a little bit nervous and then after a while feeling if I'm honest, like a fool, like an idiot for, for going to such extreme measures over such a small thing. A couple years later, uh, I'm sitting in the living room watching the 1995 AFC Championship game with my parents. Uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, Indianapolis Colts. My parents are some of the biggest Steelers fans you will ever meet, lifelong Steelers fans. It's one of their favorite things to do is to, to go home on Sundays and watch the Steelers play. And so this is a big game. It's actually kind of go, gone down as one of the greatest playoff games ever. The, the Steelers were kind of making away, and it looked like they were the ones destined for uh, the Super Bowl, but the Colts were kind of this Cinderella story, and, and they had Jim Harbaugh as their quarterback, and, and I was actually a 49ers fan, but for whatever reason, I had been kind of drawn to the Colts, so while my parents are cheering for the Steelers, I'm cheering for the Colts. It comes down to the very end, and something happens, and I don't remember what it was exactly, uh, whether it was a, a bad call or a dropped pass or a missed field goal. Something happens towards the very end that seals the fate of the Colts, and the Steelers will go on to win. And in that moment, I lose it. I just start screaming at the TV and at the refs and at no one in particular, and I storm out of the room. I go sprinting out and running, stomping up the stairs, screaming the whole way and into my room and slam the door, and there my parents are sitting in a moment where they should be celebrating because their team, first time going to the Super Bowl since I think it was 1979, and their team is going to the Super Bowl. Instead, they're just sitting in weird, awkward silence, and I was so angry, and I felt so frustrated at whatever player screwed up or whatever ref screwed up, I don't remember exactly. And then as I sat there for a little while, I also felt like a fool. I felt pretty dumb for, for ruining what could have been a really fun moment for my parents. Fast forward a few months, I'm sitting in the back seat of my parents' car. They've just picked us up from school. We're still in the school parking lot. And my brother Lane has just done something that has made me mad. I don't remember what exactly. Don't know if you're catching a theme here. But he did something that made me mad, said something, or flicked my eardrum. I don't know what it, was, what it was, but in that moment, I get angry, and I was kind of in this pattern. There was this thing that I had started doing around that time with my younger brothers when I got mad at them where I would, like, grab them by the jaw and, and just grab and just start squeezing it. So I grabbed Lane by the jaw, and I'm just in, like, a blind rage. I'm just squeezing his jaw, and then all of a sudden, I feel a pop. And my brother, Lane, spits out a tooth in the back seat. It was a baby teeth, okay? It's not permanent damage. <laughs> it, was, it was fine. It'll come back. Uh, but in the moment, like, I, Lane was actually pretty cool about it. He's like, oh, a tooth, you know? And I, though, like, in that moment, all the adrenaline left and all the rage dissipated, and I just felt awful. I, I literally, I just started crying in the back seat and apologizing and I'm so sorry and I can't believe I did that and all of those things and, and I sat there feeling like an absolute idiot, 
like a jerk, like a fool. I had this thing when I was a kid, especially those like preteen, early teen years. I was generally a, a pretty good kid, good natured. Um, I would say mostly kind, easy to get along with, easy going, nice probably to a fault. People would maybe even say I was kind of timid and those things. And yet I had this thing where in the right situation, or maybe, maybe you'd say the wrong situation, uh, particularly with my siblings and with sports, or I could tend to have a very, very short fuse. And I would often do some things in the middle of anger fits, in the middle of temper tantrums, I would often do some very dumb things, some terrible things, and things that I would quickly regret. In short, I had a temper that caused me to act like a fool, which should not be surprising because according to the Bible, that's what I was. This is how the wisdom texts in the Bible describe a person with anger. Proverbs 14, 16. A wise person is cautious and turns from evil, but a fool is easily angered and is careless. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person holds it in check. Proverbs 25, 28, a person who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. Uh, last one ups the stakes a little bit. Because according to Proverbs 25, anger does not just lead to foolishness, it leads to destruction. Walls were a really big deal in the ancient world. To live in a city with walls mattered a lot because back in that day, for any empire that was trying to grow, like conquest and expansion were the name of the game. And everyone was constantly trying to conquer as much territory as they could, which meant that if you were a city without walls, you were basically a sitting duck. You were a city that was ripe for the picking with no security against outside threats destined for destruction when the enemy came along. And that is how the Bible describes those who can't get a hold of their anger. Anger makes us vulnerable to attack, sets us up for disaster. We do foolish things when we're angry and it often leads to destruction. All of us, I think, have at least some experience with this truth. Maybe you grew up in a home where anger was a common theme in the walls of your house, and it did considerable damage to you and to the rest of your family. Maybe you still live with some of the pain and the scars of that anger. Maybe you've seen your own anger reap destruction in your life. Maybe it was a foolish destruction of physical property. You punched a hole in a wall or you broke a golf club in a little bit of a rage on the golf course out there. Maybe the damage done was not to physical things but to relationships with words that came spewing out of your mouth that you wish, you wish so bad you could take back. All of us have experienced some form of this truth the foolishness and destruction of anger, and yet we still give in to it time and time again. And many of us in this room, if we're honest, we don't just give in to it from time to time. Many of us are controlled by our anger. 
are dominated by it. Why is that? Why, even though we know better, even though we've, we've seen and experienced the consequences of it, why do we let anger drive us to do foolish things so often? There's probably a number of different explanations you could give to that. Some theological explanations about the roots of sin and the human heart, some psychological explanations about family history and, and all kinds of things like that. Can I give you at least just one really simple explanation? We let anger drive us to do foolish things because in the moment, it doesn't feel foolish. In the heat of the moment, anger and the actions that proceed from anger usually seem reasonable, justifiable, righteous sometimes even. After all, that's what Anger often is. Anger is something that occurs because something has happened that was not right, or at least I deem that it was not right. Someone has been wronged. Usually that person is myself, and justice must be served. This wrong must be made right, and in our anger, we take it upon ourselves to administer that justice. Sometimes it is in obvious ways, by yelling uh, by, by tearing people apart with our words or through physical expressions of anger, pounding our fist or hitting a wall or it, in worst uh, case scenarios, extreme scenarios, sometimes even harming other people. Sometimes, though, it's more subtle. Sometimes we dole out punishment through the silent treatment, through cold shoulders in the church lobby, through Years of a quiet, long refusal to forgive. You've been there, right? You know the way anger feels in the moment. Sometimes it feels almost so cleansing, so cathartic, so good, and, and honestly, even sometimes righteous to see someone get their just desserts. Uh, even if you haven't seen this yourself, surely you can see this on social media and on uh, cable news where people go on these long tirades against those people who are ruining this world and ruining this country, and you can see it in the way they talk and, and see it in their words and hear it in their tone, they don't just feel angry, they feel righteous because they, because they care about this country and they care about this world and what it's coming to and those people who are trying to ruin it. You can see that there's this feeling in us that our anger is not just justifiable but good but even righteous. James would disagree with us on that. South James puts it in the text we just heard, read by Jeff, James 1, starting in verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Here's why. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James says our anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. What he means by the righteousness of God is, is a life that lines itself up with God's desires and what God wants. A situation or a world that fits with what God purposes to be happening, purposes to be taking place. And James says that our anger almost never accomplishes that. 
Our anger rarely aligns our lives or our relationships or our hearts up with God's purposes. Most of the time, actually, it does the opposite. And that's because of where human anger comes from and where human anger leads. And the Bible talks a fair amount about both of those things, where human anger comes from and where it leads. So I want to take just a couple minutes to look at those two things. Human anger, first and foremost, flows from selfish desires. This is something that Ed Welch goes after in his book on anger. Is this book, actually I have it right here. It's called A Small Book About a Big Problem. And, and this is a book that I would highly recommend. It's, as you can see, a small book, just as it's uh, advertised. And, and every chapter is only like three pages long. So even if you're not a reader, and it, only, it tells you you're only supposed to read one chapter a day. So even if you're not a reader, you can do this in three to four minutes a day. And I, I believe this has been a helpful resource for me. I believe it could be helpful for you as well. I would highly recommend it. But in this book, Welch says that we tend to think of anger as something that comes upon us from outside of us, from almost out of nowhere, right? You're going along, just kind of minding your own business, going about your day, and then something happens. Someone says something rude or does something inconsiderate or does something stupid, and then boom, like that, anger just kind of washes over you in that moment. And so we have a phrase that we use to describe it almost every time. That thing or that person made me angry, that's the way we always talk. Made me, oh, that guy makes me so mad. Oh, my spouse uh, is driving me crazy. Is making me so angry right now. We, we talk about it in those kinds of terms. Welch says, actually, that's not how it works. Anger is not something that just comes upon us. Anger is something that comes from within us. It's something that rises up inside of us. And the seeds of anger or the root of anger is desire. Something that I want, a desire for power or for convenience or peace or comfort or love or respect or whatever it may be, things that aren't even necessarily bad things, but at some point, those are not just wants, they become a need, something I must have and an inalienable right in me that, that I am entitled to. And then when someone or something stands in the way of that thing, that's where anger comes in. That's where anger arises. James would actually agree with that assessment. This is what he says just a few chapters later. James chapter 4. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Do you catch that? What is the thing, what, is, what causes the, the anger and the conflict and the frustrations among you? The thing that's causing this among you is something within you. It is the, the passions or desires that you have. He says in verse 2, this is what it is. You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. I have found this to be true in my own life. I, I told you that when I was a kid, I had a pretty crazy temp, uh, temper something that could kind of just explode at any moment. And then as I got older, 14, 15, 16 years old, I found that that temper began to kind of go away. 
And I seemed to be really growing out of it in a lot of ways. And I didn't just feel it myself. I remember like my parents commenting on that, how I seemed to be getting a better grip on things. And, and it would still pop up, namely like in sports, when either playing or watching sports, I could still feel that happen from time to time. But mostly it was good. And I became a pretty laid back person, a pretty uh, chill kind of peaceful person, not, not easy to get into conflict, those kinds of things. And most people would describe me as that, and I would have agreed with that assessment. And then I had kids. <laughs> and there's something about small children, uh, little children that, that seem to like push against so many of those things that expose a lot of those things. And I, I began to find when my children were young that there were more and more times when I was letting anger just overwhelm me. Uh, I specifically remember still um, our oldest, Ella, when she was two years old. Uh, she had some sort of little scare where she was eating some food and kind of choked on it for just a second. And so she just decided in that moment that she would just never swallow food again. Uh, and, and I, like, it, it did not matter how much we reasoned with her or threatened her or tried to discipline her or, and it didn't matter what we did, she just, she, she had made up her mind she was not going to swallow. And I can still remember sitting in the dining room of our first house and her in the high chair and feeding her food and she would just stuff it into the cheeks of her mouth and they would just keep getting bigger and bigger until the moment came where, like, we weren't watching she could spit it out or something like that. And this thing that dawned on me in that moment that there was nothing I could do to control this little human. There was nothing, I, this was completely out of my ability to make her do what I wanted. And something about that infuriated me. And I could feel like my blood pressure rising. I remember when our kids were little and wouldn't stay in bed and they keep coming out and it's been such a long day and all I want to do is just sit in peace and quiet and talk with my wife or watch a show or something and they keep coming out. And I know not only is this frustrating now, but they're going to be cranky tomorrow. And so now I'm angry at the future version of them as well. And, and I'm so frustrated inside. And again, I, I mean, we were disciplining. We were, we were doing everything we could to try and make it stop, and I couldn't make it happen. And it would infuriate me when they would whine or bicker, all the things that kids do, and I would say things like, they're making me so angry, but that's not true. They were exposing something in me. The reality is that the reason I was, that I am, a pretty laid-back person and a pretty peaceful, calm person is because I desire peace and calm and comfort above everything else. That is one of the major desires in my life. And if you like peace and calm and comfort, little children are not the environment for you to be hanging out in. And when, when I would see that they were interrupting that, when, it, when, it was, when they were, seemed to be taking that away from me, it caused me to get angry or I would let anger flow up out of that and it would begin to just enrage me. So question for you, what makes you angry? What things really drive you to frustration and fury? And deeper question, why is that? What might be the, the unmet desire or the unmet expectation that you crave so much that's being taken in that moment that causes that? So we see that anger flows from selfish desires, but it's also true that anger leads to something. And that's the other thing the Bible tells us over and over again, that anger leads to foolish destruction. 
We already talked about this at the beginning with Proverbs 25, that an angry person is like a city without walls destined for destruction. Here's another place where it's described in Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25. The writer says, don't make friends with an angry person, and don't be a companion of a hot-tempered one, or you will learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. To be an angry person is to fall into a trap. A snare that grabs a hold of you and does not let go. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Now, pause for just a second because that first sentence there, be angry and do not sin. That's an interesting one. And it's got some implications for it that we kind of need to unpack here. And, and we'll do that in just a bit. But for now, I'm just going to ask you how to hang on to that. Stick it in your back pocket and we'll come back and talk, to, uh, talk about it. But, but what I want to draw your attention to in this moment is verse 27. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity, something, Paul says, about holding on to anger and bitterness makes us vulnerable to spiritual attack. Other translations will translate this, don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a place to grip and grab a hold of in your life. That's what happens when I let anger and bitterness and failure to forgive sit inside of me. What anger tends to do It causes my heart to grow hard towards other people, towards what they might be going through or the pain I might be inflicting on them. Anger causes me to become increasingly deaf to God's word. In my self-righteous anger and rage, I'm hard to hear those things. It also causes me to become blind to the many blessings that God has given me because all I can focus on is what I don't have and what I've been robbed of and what I've been cheated out of and I cannot see the good things that God has given me. And that kind of state, that kind of mindset where I am hardened to other people, deaf to God's word and blind to his goodness is an incredible opportunity to walk myself into sin. And an incredible place to be in if I want to justify it. And so it is like, well, it's like being a city without walls. Makes me ripe for the picking. As Ray Ortland says in his commentary on this passage, the devil loves hanging out with angry people. I suppose for him it's funny how they keep falling for the same old tricks. Here's the thing, though. The destruction that comes with anger is almost never restricted to me alone. It's almost never limited to my own life. It always, almost always, wreaks havoc on those around us as well. When we are angry, we hurt the people we love. We can sometimes ruin friendships. We can allow bitterness to control us and therefore to control our homes 
anger leads towards all kinds of destruction. How many churches have been split in two or in three and had their witnesses destroyed and their ministry to a community destroyed because anger and bitterness took root in the lives of the people of that church? How many marriages have been torn apart by anger and a refusal to forgive? How many children have been hardened to the things of God because their Christian parents let anger control them and every time they did, they were too prideful to go back and apologize to their kids. I plead with you this morning, don't let that be you. Don't let that be your marriage. Don't let that be your family or your children. Don't let that be this church. Don't give the devil a foothold into your heart or into your relationships. Don't give him a foothold into your interactions and your relationships with the brothers and sisters in this room. Don't let him grab a hold of you with gossip or bitterness or whatever it may take to drive you apart from other brothers and sisters. As Paul commands later in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness, anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. So here's the deal. I, I can't lie to you. I could, but my kids are in the room. And, and so I, I cannot come to you in this moment and pretend like I'm talking to you from a place of superiority, a place where I've got it all figured out. Uh, I, there are probably few things uh, in this life that have tripped me up more than the sin of anger. And I... I I think I'm growing. I'm working hard at growing and being better in these things. And, and God and his mercy is, is, I think, working in me. But it is a slow process. <clears throat> and there's so many times when I have yelled and said hurtful things or I've just been irritable or grouchy and no fun to be like and I've acted like a fool inside the walls of my own home and there have been so many times, more than I can count, when I have had to pull my kids aside and my wife too, but especially my kids and just apologize to tell them that I was wrong and that even, even if they did have a part to play in this, even if they were disobedient or disrespectful, it did not justify the level of reaction that they got from me. The over-the-top reaction and the tongue-lashing that I gave was not so much about correcting or disciplining as it was about me just venting my anger like a fool. And so I've gone back, and every time it's hard, every time it stinks, every time I don't want to do it, but I've apologized because I need them to know uh, that that's not okay. And I need them to know that, that that's not how we act as Christians. And I, I don't want to treat them that way. I don't want them to treat other people that way. That's not how we live. And apologizing might not fix it, but they need to hear it, and they need to know it, and they need to know that Dad needs just as much forgiveness and grace from Jesus as they do. It's a question. Is there anyone you need to apologize to? Not because it will fix it and make it all go away, but because you just need to acknowledge that the way you acted was foolish and wrong. You may be thinking in your mind right now, you may be wondering, so wait a second, does this mean that I'm never allowed to be angry at my kids? 
but I'm never allowed to be mad at a spouse or a roommate or someone who's hurt me that, that, or hurt someone I love, that every time I get angry about those things, that that is sinful. No, I, I don't think it is. I, I think, because of what we just read, a couple of verses, uh, a little bit ago, Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and do not sin. I believe that it is actually possible to be angry and to not be sinful. It's actually a quote from Psalm 4. Psalm 4, 4 is what Paul is quoting there. So twice in the Bible we're said, we're told, be angry and do not sin. These two things, it's rare. It's rare to be angry and not give in to sin, but it is possible to do. Paul himself gets angry at times. You read his letter, say, to the Galatians and the way he talks to them. He's angry about the way they are abandoning the faith. You can read through the scriptures in there a number of times where God is described as angry. And of course, God is not sinful in his anger. We see a few different places in the gospels where his son, Jesus, is angry. Mark chapter 3, tells this story where Jesus is in a synagogue and it's on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath, of course, is a day where you're not supposed to be working. And while Jesus is there in the synagogue, he sees this man with a shriveled hand. And he knows, he knows as the Son of God what he has the ability to do here and he knows what he should and wants to do to heal this man. But he also knows that he is surrounded in a room by religious leaders who are watching his every move and who have been waiting for this moment where they can catch him in a predicament like this because if Jesus chooses to heal this man, they call that work. And they would say that now Jesus is a lawbreaker, which means, listen, we don't have to listen to this guy anymore, to a lawbreaker like this. And so Jesus pauses, and he poses a question to everyone in the room. What is better to do on the Sabbath, he says, to do good or to do evil? On this day that God has given us as a gift, do you think God would rather us use this day to help people in need or to leave them in their suffering? And he asked the question, and everyone in the room just looks at him stone-faced. They know the answer. They don't care. And so we read these words in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. It says this, After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. In this moment, we see Jesus gets angry. He gets very angry. The word, the Greek word used to describe him there, orge, it's this idea of like a fury. It can be described as like a wrath that is like boiling up inside of him. He gets very angry in this moment, and yet Jesus does not sin. How is that? Why? What is the difference between Jesus' anger in this moment and the human anger that is described in James chapter 1? What is the difference between the kind of anger that Jesus has and the anger that I so often have? I think the difference lies in what I'm going to call the root and the fruit of Jesus' anger. I want to show you real quick an overly simplistic amateur explanation of how anger works. Emphasis on overly simplistic and amateur, okay? Uh, I am not an expert by any means, but I really do think that this is a fairly accurate uh, explanation of the way emotions are driven in us and they work. And that is that every time you or I experience anger, when something happens in us and that emotion of anger rises up, there is pretty much every time two other things that accompany that emotion. First, there is the thought or the belief that gives rise to that anger. 
the thing that goes through my head. So I'm on the road and somebody cuts me off and something goes through my head. That person was inconsiderate. That person is so rude. They, they're reckless. They could have killed me. They, they're not even paying attention. And depending on what my belief is, uh, specifically about their intentions or how much they knew what they were doing is going to give rise to the anger and what level or what kind of anger I have. And then out of the emotion flows this other thing, and that is my response, the actions, the fruit of my anger. So in this scenario, I honk my horn might be the response, or I yell things at them even though they can't hear it because we're both in cars, or I go and I pull in front of them, or I tail them, whatever it may be, there is always a belief or a thought that gives rise to the emotion that then usually moves itself out into some sort of response, whether that be an active response or a passive response, like sitting back and holding onto anger or refusing to not say anything, maybe rightfully. So let's just kind of run Jesus' story through this grid. In this moment, Mark 3, Jesus gets angry. He gets very angry. But the question is, what is at the root of Jesus' anger? What is the thought or belief that causes him to get angry? It is not, as James describes, selfish desires within Jesus. It's not uh, that he's being inconvenienced and he gets angry. It's not that he doesn't feel like he's getting the respect that he deserves in this moment and therefore he gets angry. No, what the text tells us, he is angry because he knows, because he believes, and it's true that the people around him have hard hearts. Hearts that are hardened to God and to the things of God. Hearts that are hardened to the suffering of another human being. They care more about their traditions than they do this man's pain and suffering. And that makes Jesus angry. And rightfully so because what he is witnessing is not the righteousness that God envisions is not the kind of world that we are meant to be living in. And he hates that, and he's angry towards that. And so he feels that emotion, and then he responds. But what is the response? It's not a temper tantrum. He doesn't stomp his feet. He doesn't start screaming. He doesn't start punching people or anything like that. No. His response is restorative. His response is to heal this man. But not just heal this. I I really think there's significance to this. He could have removed the man and taken him in a place or healed him later where they couldn't see. I think he heals in front of these people to teach them a lesson. And I don't mean that like in an angry, teach them a lesson. Well, maybe. He is angry. I mean that like literally, he is not just trying to heal a man's hand. He is also going after the hardness of their hearts. He is trying to heal a hard heart by showing a truth to these people, whether they'll hear it or not. So parents, you're going to feel anger. Roommates, you're going to feel anger. Coworkers, you're going to feel anger at times. Anger is simply a sign that something is wrong or that there is something that I do not like that is taking place, rightfully or wrongfully. The question is not, will I feel anger? The question is, what is at the root of my anger? What is the belief that I'm holding to and how will I respond? So you come home from a long day of work and you're tired and you're worn out, but from the moment you've walked in the door, your kids have done nothing but fight with each other. Just bickering constantly and yelling at each other and calling each other things and whining. And, and, and if that's you and if you're a human at all, if you're a person, you're going to feel some level of frustration in that. You're going to feel frustration. That's natural. Now, if you're taking James' advice and if you're following the pattern of your Father in heaven, that anger is going to be slow to come. 
It's going to be slow in rising. And so you're going to try to work through it patiently. You're going to try and pull them aside, and you're going to try and instruct them and direct them and set them on the right course. But let's just say that you've done that. Let's say that you've done that two or three times, and you've tried to work with them, and yet they continue to go after this over and over again. At that point, anger will begin to set in. But there are a number of different thoughts or beliefs that could give rise to the anger in that moment. One of the thoughts or beliefs that could go through your mind in that moment is, my kids should not be acting this way. This is broken. This is not how we treat other human beings. This is not how I want my kids to be treated. Even if it's by my other kids, this is broken, and that makes me angry, which is going to lead to a response on my part. I'm going to go to them and hopefully gently but firmly correct them and discipline them and even give them consequences if necessary which I believe would be a right form of anger and a right response in it. But what so often happens is another thought or belief gives rise to our anger, one that has often given rise to me in this moment, and I will just confess that to you, is not so much this is broken and they should not be acting like this, but I should not have to deal with this crap right now. Right? It's been a long day, and I'm tired, and the last thing I want to do is sit at home and break up fights all evening long, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to work through these things, and, and we feel those, and, and when we say those kinds of things, or when we think those kinds of things, well, the belief that is actually being expressed, whether we would say it out loud or not, is, is something along the lines of, I should not have to parent right now, which is technically not true. It's a false belief because when I became a parent, that means I signed up to parent, to direct and instruct and discipline my kids and shepherd them and point them in the right direction and not just on the days when I've got lots of energy and not just on the days when things are going well, but on the days when I'm tired and things aren't working well. This is what I signed up to do. This is what you signed up to do as a parent. And so this belief that I shouldn't have to do this begins to push me towards a different kind of anger. And what happens is often we go in guns blazing, yelling ourselves, and and we take a broken situation that we rightfully assess as broken, and we just kind of heap more brokenness on top of it which is not what anger is designed to do. Our anger, when it comes, should, should look like God's anger in at least two ways. There are two key things about God and his anger that should be true of ours. First, God's anger is always slow in coming. This is one of the most repeated phrases describing God in the scriptures over and over again, that he is not quick-tempered or irritable, that he is not the kind of God who sits back and huffs at every one of our failures or flies off the handle when something wrong happens. He is extremely, extraordinarily slow to get angry, patient beyond human reasoning at times. And that should be us. But the second thing we see about God and his anger is that it is always ultimately restorative. That God's anger does accomplish the righteousness of God, to use James' phrase from chapter 1. It does accomplish God's righteousness. 
That when God sees sin or evil or brokenness or injustice, that rightfully makes him angry. And that anger compels him to act, to punish evil or to fix brokenness or to bring judgment upon injustice. And he is doing that in part now. And throughout history, he has been doing that in part. But there will come a day when he will do that in full. There will come a day when God's anger will move in such a way that he will forever rid the world of this cancer we call sin that is ruining his good creation. There will come a day when God's anger and wrath will wipe every last bit of evil and brokenness from this world. Here's the bad news. You and I are a part of that brokenness and evil and sin in this world and that you and I are just as deserving of God's anger, of God's wrath as anyone else. And if God is going to truly bring righteousness about in this world, that means he is going to have to punish sin. That means that we must be punished for our sin and our rebellion. But here's the good news. The good news is that if you are in Christ, God has already done that for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, he's already punished your sin because the Father, even though he's angry at sin, even though he is righteous, holy wrath towards sin, the Father longed to restore you to himself, loved you enough that he longed to bring you to himself, and his son Jesus longed for the same thing, and so Jesus willingly went to the cross and took all the punishment you and I deserve for our sins. Bible says it like this in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5, but he, Jesus, was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Here's the word, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of all, of us all. The cross, you see, is the ultimate expression of God's restorative anger, of God's, if I can use this phrase, merciful anger. Because there on the cross, what God did was he poured punishment out on Jesus, the punishment that I deserved, the punishment that I was supposed to take so that he could then pour love out on me. So he could then pour unending mercy and unending grace and extraordinary patience, as Paul calls it in 1 Timothy, out on me and out on you. That is why every Sunday you and I come together and we celebrate with a meal. We celebrate this truth. What one pastor has said that the cross is like this ultimate meeting place between the anger of man and the anger of God. Men, in their rage and anger at Jesus, did everything they could and conspired to put him up on that cross. And God, in his anger at sin and rebellion, used that very cross, used that very moment to make right the wrongs of this world, to punish you and I, our sin, and to take care of those things because he's a God who is too loving and too merciful to not save us, but he's a God who's too good and holy to simply look away at our sin. And if you're in here this morning, if if you've never actually placed your faith in Jesus, if that's not something you're aware of, then, then you need to know that this invitation stands ready for you. 
that while the rest of us get to celebrate with the meal, that you get to, to know that God has extended the same thing to you, that everything you've done, there's anger there because he's righteous, but there is infinite mercy extended to you, ready to take that on you because he, because he put the punishment you deserve on Jesus so he could put the love that he wants to give out on you. And so, brothers and sisters, this is Christ's body given for that reason. Let's take and eat together. This is Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's drink together. And now, let's stand and sing about a God of holy anger and incredible merciful love.